Christmas is a time to remember. And many of us have fond memories of Christmas's past. Special family members from years gone by. For some of us, those memories may go back decades. And for some of us, it may go back a half century or more when we were children or when we were grandchildren. And in those reflections, we can recount family traditions that were so important to our parents and our grandparents. It may involve the reading of the biblical account of the Christmas story as a family and then going uh, to a Christmas Eve service together. Perhaps your memories might involve eating certain ethnic seasonal foods and treats and various ethnic beverages. Or maybe these memories involve a certain time when the tree would be put up in your household or it would be decorated and the house would be decorated. Or maybe it was when you made cookies or wrapped the presents. Uh, maybe your memories involve loved ones traveling home from their domiciles. Children who grew up in your home, coming home from, for call, at college, or being home on leave from the service. I can recall vividly uh, uncles of mine coming home, and this was back in the day when they would wear their military uniforms. Not the military fatigues like you see them wearing now, but in their dressed up, you know, to the nines, in their military uniforms, coming home for Christmas. And my grandpa and grandma, tears just in their eyes. And of course, this was in the Vietnam era, too. So this added extra significance to this. Perhaps you have Christmas memories of putting care packages together and gifts and cookies to send to those who couldn't be home at Christmas time. Some of those because of being in the service and you mailed it to remote parts of the globe. For some of you, the generosity and good wills of, of others is what stands out in your memories. The helping of the less fortunate. The making of Christmas special for a family who wouldn't be able to celebrate it otherwise. Maybe it was the care and provisions that you saw someone give to a person who was lonely. Or perhaps what blessed you the most was seeing family members do without so that others might have something special at Christmas time. These are memories that are precious to us. And there's also memories of feasting and fellowship and children's programs at school and at church. And in our Swedish uh, Mission Covenant Church history, they had a service that was held on Christmas morning, very early in the morning, called the Yule Atta service. Now, as someone from a Finnish background, we'd say, Yule Atta. You know, we would roll that. But uh, I, I, I got post-traumatic stress disorder from my early years here in this church because, you know, I'm a Swede Finn, they would say, even though I'm more Finnish than Swedish. But, but they were upset that I couldn't say that word right, okay? Uh, I was actually more concerned about having to drag myself out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning to have a Christmas morning service. And, and it never was a very big draw, let me tell you, at 6 o'clock in the morning. But Yule means Christmas. And Atta means uh, uh, early, before dawn, you know, before uh, daybreak. So it's early in the morning, six o'clock uh, in the morning. And we would gather together and do that. And uh, they would celebrate that Christ had come, the advent. And then also, along with the incarnation celebration, the Eulata service was intended to remember the end of Advent. Now, it was held here at 6 in the morning, really big draw for young families with children, let me tell you. 
And uh, we, in the early years of my ministry here, started to move away from that service. We would have one year that service, and the next year we'd have a Christmas Eve service at 10 o'clock at night. And we rotated that back and forth for a while. And that was also not easy to have just a 10 o'clock service. Uh, our children, being a pastor's family, they would, we would drag them to church at 10 o'clock at night. And uh, they would be in their PJs and everything ready to go back home and go to bed. So you can imagine little Nathan, you know, as a little toddler coming in his camouflage footsie pajamas. Uh, and now he's, now he's running cameras and doing all kinds of other things here. But, but uh, uh, yeah, that's the way it was in the early days. Later on, because of growth in our church and limited seating, we went to two Christmas Eve services. One at 5 o'clock, the other at 10 o'clock. And, and families like that. They really did. Because some families have traditions uh, where they could... Uh, Go to the five o'clock service and then go be with grandpa and grandma or some of the extended family and do that. Others liked having their supper together, their evening meal and being with their cousins at that time and, and other relatives and then they would come to the 10 p.m. service. So people locked in, really, from year to year to one of those services. And our Christmas Eve services also traditionally were a time where a love offering was taken for the pastor. Okay, it was so ingrained to take that for the pastor that even when they added extra pastors to the church, I was the one who got the offering and the other pastors didn't get the offering. Okay, it was that ingrained and of course I did the right thing in those situations and just shared the offering with everybody else who was there. But the staff started becoming uncomfortable with that. Uh, the, the church chair would get up, would announce what the offering was about. Uh, we would take the offering within a day or two. The pastor would get a check and everybody kind of became a little uncomfortable with that. So we recommended to the church that we start doing a love offering for Jesus instead of an offering for the pastors. Not that we didn't mind having a Christmas bonus, let me tell you. It was nice especially in those early years, but, but we felt like it's Jesus' birthday. Let's do something for missions, something locally or something, uh, you know, internationally. And I have to tell you, over the years, we have been blessed, and I have been blessed time and time again through these years by the generosity of Mission Covenant Church at our Christmas Eve services and their love offering that goes to missionaries in different parts of the world. And I'm respectfully praying that tonight will be no different than that as we help out our brothers and sisters in Christ at the Pine Ridge Inning Reservation who are doing a remarkable ministry with the vulnerable children there in a care facility called Naomi House. Now, over the years, as I go to Covenant Park Bible Camp and I see that zip line and I see that climbing wall and I see how that's used in ministry and the lives that are being touched there, I can't help but stand back and think three-fourths of the, the money for that came from one Christmas Eve love offering in our church. And I can think of two weeks ago going to a high school basketball game and seeing an African-American young man and talking to him and, uh, and knowing that his life has been so dramatically changed by the services and interventions that have happened in his life because he came from an orphanage in South Africa. A young man who's involved in our youth ministry and VBS and now our missions kids ministry at our church here and knowing how his life and many other lives were impacted. Some of those children in that orphanage were because of uh, in utero AIDS. They were infected very... and. And, 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 and their lives were, uh, and also drug alcohol issues and, and fetal alcohol syndrome and these poor children. And one of the members of our church was working at that uh, uh, in retirement at that orphanage for a number of years. And here's somebody's life who so dramatically changed because of very, very large offering and came in on Christmas Eve. And I just cannot be, uh, you know, tell you how thankful I am for a church that is that generous. You know, the memories of Christmas has passed and the season just flooded through my mind. 
I think of all the beautiful homemade sewn clothes that our children received every Christmas Eve from Elvira Redmond. And all of the uh, beautiful, uh, um, you know, they would give to Cindy and I all kinds of cheese, uh, all kinds of butter because they were dairy farmers and, then, uh, and they supported the, the dairy industry. Uh, and then who can forget Dean and Betty Pearson? And Betty would make this twisted cinnamon bread with glaze on it that was to die for. I mean, to die for. It never made it past Christmas Day, I can tell you, in our house. And then who could ever forget uh, Phyllis Johnson's caramel rolls? I mean, have you ever eaten a caramel roll that melts in your mouth? And if, if you eat three or four of them, you really know what it's like. You get that sensation that really works for you. It, honestly, it's amazing. I don't weigh 400 pounds. I'm telling you. It, it was unbelievable. Then there, there's all the lovely cards, all the wonderful gifts from family, friends, and church members. Christmas is a time for memories. Revisiting old ones and making new ones. And if we're fortunate and wise, we'll do both. And for Cindy and I, we cannot wait for our children to make it home this evening and to be together tonight in the Christmas Eve service where our second daughter, Naomi, and our oldest granddaughter, Emmeline, are going to be right over there at the keyboard and singing tonight's offertory song. She's a seven-year-old girl. I'm telling you what, we're praying for Journey's mercies that they can make it here and that this can happen. And our hearts are ready to burst already. A grandchild getting up to testify in song about the faithfulness and love of Jesus. And on Emmy's father's side, there are numerous, numerous Evangelical Covenant Church pastors. In fact, her great-grandfather, Jerry Stenberg, who just passed away, ago, uh, away a year ago uh, at 96 years of age, he was formerly the superintendent of the Canadian Conference in the Evangelical Covenant Church. That covers all of Canada. And when Emmy's mother and father were married, 13. Teen covenant pastors were involved that weekend. I mean, my head was spinning. Uh, never. It's a record in our church. You know, 500 or so weddings that have happened here in my time in ministry here, and we've never had 13 pastors involved. I mean, they would be involved in their, you know, rehearsal dinner or the wedding itself or the reception or, okay, who's doing this? They're, they're praying here. They're reading the scripture here. They're singing a song here. They're, you know, it, it, was, um, it was incredible. And two of those were from our side of the family. And one of them's yours truly, who came from an unchurched, alcoholic, dysfunctional family. So needless to say, if they can arrive here tonight and pull this off, there's going to be some proud family members, and Cindy and I are going to cherish these new Christmas memories for the rest of our lives. Christmas is a time for remembering, as we regularly do during the Advent season. And sometimes even we think back over the year, 2023, and that has just passed, and then we start looking forward to the new year to come. The Bible does this kind of remembering. As we just witnessed in our scripture reading today from Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. The apostle Paul who is writing this letter from prison uh, has a lot of time in his imprisonment to think and to pray. And he's responding to the love gift that the Philippian church has sent him to provide for his needs. And imprisonment back then was not three hots and a cot and cable television and a basketball court and, and, uh, and places to lift weights. Uh, it wasn't any of that, okay? Uh, it was tough. And they provided for his needs. And he tells them that he thanks God in prayer every time that he remembers them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. 
Now, what you may not realize today is that the Christmas account that's written about in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the first 23 verses of Matthew chapter 1, is also a time of remembrance. And the gospel begins listing the genealogy of Jesus, which is something that we tend to just kind of breeze right over when we read it. But let's not do that today. Let me read for you those first 18 verses. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shelatil. Shelatil, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of, of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. And then the beginning of verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Got all that? It makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it? You're probably all thankful I didn't ask uh, Pastor Sam to read that in the scripture reading today. <laughs> We'd still be here. But I want you to recognize from the Bible that God planned the arrival of Jesus at the very early days of his creation. In Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 it says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from when? The creation of the world. God planned that for a long time. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. So this time had been planned, and it fully came. And we need to understand this genealogy within that particular context. This isn't some story that begins with, once upon a time. Okay? It's a report of what actually happened, of what occurred in history. And it's also not advice that's just given to us to, to be considered or followed or, well, we can just disregard that. It's basically a news report about what happened, what occurred in human history. Now, there's a distinction here. Timothy Keller once said, advice urges a person to make something happen. 
News urges a person to recognize what has happened and then to respond to it. For instance, right now in Iceland, there's the volcanic eruptions. And people need to know this very moment from scientists and government officials if there are going to be any more breaches in the Earth's crust that the lava is going to erupt from. And then because of that, who would be at risk? Uh, what are the evacuation plans if that would happen? And where are the emergency shelters going to be? In other words, they need advice about what they must do. But if things calm down, if the volcanic activity ceases and the threat no longer exists, people wouldn't need advice. They would need messengers to come and tell them that it's safe to return home. In the New Testament, do you know what the Greek word, the Koine Greek word is for messengers? It's the word angelos. It's where we get the word what? angel from. And the narratives, the biblical narratives of the Christmas accounts are all full of messengers. They're all full of angels. Mary had an angel appear to her. Joseph in a dream. The shepherds had angels come to them and they gave them news and it was a report of what was happening and what was going to happen that Jesus, the savior of the world, was coming and he had come. And this is the report of news, the report of good news. Now for us this side of the cross, we tend to interpret this genealogy simply as saying that Jesus is a descendant of King David, just as God promised in the Old Testament. Now, in limiting ourselves to that interpretation, we're missing out on what is being said and why Matthew even begins his gospel, this Christmas account, with this message. We also bring to this text our own individual and cultural biases. In the world in which we live, we tend to recommend ourselves to others by listing our degrees that we've earned, our training that we've received, our work experience in history, our years of service, our accomplishments, etc. Basically, our resume. And this is not how things, though, were done in a first century Hebrew culture that Jesus was born into. Matthew chapter 1 looks to us like a genealogy that's boring to read. You know, we could chuckle about, did you get all that? Oh. You know, but it actually is Jesus's resume. It's Jesus's portfolio, if you will, because in a communal family-oriented culture, a person's family pedigree mattered. Who you were mattered. So a genealogy was a, t a way of telling the world, this is who I am. And when we put our resume together, what things do we usually not include in our resume? We don't include our failures, do we? Okay, we, we only put the things that we've done, uh, our accomplishments, our successes, what levels we've reached in life. We leave out the portions that make us look bad. And when I was coming out of college, uh, I listed my goals employment-wise on my resume. I listed my degrees that I had. I, I talked about my student teaching experience and work history. I listed the numbers of times that I had made the dean's list in college. And I even listed the time I was selected as the Wisconsin State University Conference Scholar Athlete. But what I did not list on my resume and all of our administrative assistants who've ever worked at this church are going to be completely surprised by this. Not that I got a D in penmanship in sixth grade. <laughs> we got some real scholars that have been administrative assistants here because they can interpret Egyptian hieroglyphics and everything else. 
from my penmanship. And it's pretty neat some of the things they come up with sometimes too. Uh, by <laughs> even I chuckle about that. But I also didn't put on my resume that I got a D in, in Western civilization, a history class in college. And we don't do that. We don't put our failures on there. And historically, it's a well-known fact in the first century of Israel that Herod the Great removed some names from his public genealogy because he didn't want anybody to know of his connection to them. In other words, he didn't want any of those so-called failures on his resume, his portfolio. And you know, sometimes Cindy and I, as husband and wife, will banter back and forth about our families and extended families of origin. And we're always humbled when we learn something and even saddened sometimes when we learn some negative things from our family tree. And then one of us or the other, and, and I'll, I'll usually start this, well, at least I come from good stock. And, and, then, and then she'll fire back, oh yeah, 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 your claim to fame is you're a relative of Johnny Depp. You know, and, and we do that back and forth and we chuckle because we know it's air by the grace of God. Go I, all of us. All of us in our wood piles got some really checkered things. And there are some remarkable things in Jesus' family tree. Did you notice that five women were listed there? Now, from our 21st century perspective, that doesn't seem like a big deal at all. And they were all mothers of Jesus through the mother's line there, okay? In an ancient patriarchal misogynist culture, this was unheard of for a woman to ever be named because they were considered outsiders. Then three of the five women were what? They're Gentiles. They weren't even Jews. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Canaanites and Moabites. Unclean people who weren't even allowed to enter into the tabernacle or later when the temple was built. These are racial, gender, and religious outsiders who are put into Jesus' genealogy. And think as well about the accounts of these women. Tamar tricked her father-in-law into an adulterous, uh, uh, incestuous act. And they ain't saying too much good about the father-in-law there either. But Rahab's livelihood was prostitution. And she came from a stock of people that are soon to be destroyed by Israel. The Messiah comes from a family tree like this. And then we get to verse 6. And it's Jesse, the, uh, the father of David, and was Solomon's father, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Now, why would Matthew say that? Why wouldn't Matthew just name uh, Solomon's mom, Bathsheba? He's doing this intentionally because he's recalling a tragic and a horrible chapter in Israel's history. Let me explain it to you. When David was fleeing from King Saul for the first 10 years of his young adult life, he had already been anointed as king of Israel uh, by the prophet Samuel, the same prophet who had informed King Saul that God was taking the kingdom away from him and giving it to David, which Saul didn't take kindly to. So he took matters into his own hands and he spent those 10 years pursuing David, trying to kill David, trying to take his life, get the competition out of the way. And during his years of flight, David ended up in the wilderness many times. He ended up even in foreign countries. But he had a security detail with him, a fighting force, a group of warriors who had sworn allegiance to protect him. And the Bible refers to these people as mighty men. Well, Uriah was one of them. 2 Samuel 23 verse 8 says that these are the names of the mighty warriors. Then verse 37 it says, and Uriah the Hittite. 
This genealogy is not being disrespectful to Bathsheba and not naming her. It's placing blame squarely on David, showing David's deep human flaws as an adulterer, as, as someone who abused his power, as someone who is an accomplice to premeditated murder. And in this list, we see cultural outsiders. We see racial outsiders, gender outsiders. We see moral misfits, adulterers. We see incestuous behavior, prostitution, the Israel, uh, and, and, and Israel's most prominent male figure. King David as a moral failure. The very law of God would prohibit each of these people from the presence of God. And yet they're all named in the Messiah's Christmas genealogy. What does all of this possibly mean? It means that people who are excluded by the culture or people who are excluded by religious people or even by the old covenant can now be brought into God's family. Anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus for their salvation can be saved. And in the Old Testament, a person would be declared unclean for contact with such people listed above in the genealogy of Jesus. Such ungodly conduct was viewed as defiling to those who were holy and came into contact with them. Amazingly, the Bible teaches in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that Jesus' holiness and righteousness cannot be contaminated by contact with us sinful human beings. And of course, King David had all the right credentials to be listed in this genealogy. He had power. He was highly regarded as a military leader. He had defeated Goliath. He had defeated the enemies of Israel. He had defeated other nations, foreign countries. He was royalty. He was a man, not a woman. He was a Jew and not a Gentile. He was wealthy and not poor. Yet he too gets to be with Jesus, in Jesus' family tree by God's grace. His deeds were also worse than anything these women had listed on here had even done. And this is a powerful message of Christmas. One of the, the gospel writer wants us to remember a prostitute, a king, men, women, one race and other races, the moral and the immoral, all can be part of Jesus' family by faith. Those who are sinful and destined to perish will be accepted and loved by God. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 in the context is speaking of the superiority of Christ above all else in this world and above all else in the spiritual world. It says both the one who makes people holy and the ones who are made holy, listen to that, are of the same family. So Jesus is not afraid to call them brothers and sisters. Do you comprehend the significance of this? All cultures of the world have pecking orders where someone is superior to someone else. Someone is better than someone else. And it may be based upon class, might be based upon race or educational backgrounds, caste systems, religion, politics, someone's employment, their worldview. In all of this, some people uh, are viewed as good and some are not good. Not so in God's economy. These things have no place in Jesus' family. No place in Christ's church. And it should also be noted here that related to the genealogy of God's timeline is that it's not always our timeline. Because in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, God had promised Abram, 
whose name was changed to Abraham a handful of chapters later when the covenant with Abraham was ratified. Uh, he promised him in Genesis 12 verse 3 that all the world would be blessed by Abraham's descendants. And of course, he didn't have any at the time. He and his wife were childless and they were up in years. Then thousands of years go by. Does God really do what he says he's going to do? Does God do that? Well, we come to Luke chapter 1. And Mary, this young, early teen young woman, uh, has an angel visit her regarding her immaculate conception by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in response to this, Mary breaks out in this amazing song in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. A powerful prophetic teaching that the church has looked to and learned from for millennia now. And it's a message to this young teenage girl who's been continuously teaching us. And, and it sings this song powerfully. In verses 54 and 55, look what it says. She sums up her song. He, that's referring to God, has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's Jesus, that's the promise. Christmas means that God is working out his purposes in this world, even when it doesn't seem like that to us. God's word teaches us that Christmas is a time to remember. To remember that there's a place for each of us in God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you so much today for reminding us how important memories are at this time of year. And just as we have these precious family memories and memories of Christmas's past, and uh, they warm our hearts and they bring great joy to us, God, you have reminded us that the greatest memory of all is to remember that Christ came and why Jesus came and that there's room in the family of Jesus for anybody. doesn't matter how we've sinned or how, how much we've marred the image of God in our lives, that God, you want us. You want to be in a relationship with us and you love us so much that when that full fulfillment of time had come, Jesus came to this world. God, I pray if there's anybody here or anybody listening online, if they have not yet come to know Jesus as Savior, that today they would say yes to God. They would say no to their sin and yes to you and, and believe in you and receive you as Savior and Lord of their lives. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.